When people feel insecure, they play politics. When people play politics, you get poor performance. And that poor performance leads to insecurity. And around and around you go in this horrible, vicious cycle. Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Hello and welcome to the show. It's just me today, but not really just me because I am joined today with a wonderful thinker, Pete Dilkamara. Pete is the former chief scientist at Kimberly Clark, where we first started working together. He's now on his own working to create businesses that improve people's lives from his base in Wisconsin. Pete is one of the most interesting thinkers I have ever encountered. You talk about a guy who's outside the box. We're going to have a great discussion today. Pete, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Bryce. I'm really looking forward to it. So, Pete, I got to start by talking about your map and, and, you know, when we started working with Kimberly Clark, uh, gosh, right. It was right after the pandemic started. Um, it was, it was back in, in spring of 2020, the very first, uh, workshop we did with you guys, you were on it. And, and the very first thing I saw was your map. And I said, then that is a red team (laughs) thinking map. If there ever was one, can you unpack that map for people? Yeah. Yeah. Bryce. Yeah. I get this asked all the time. People always ask, why is your map upside down? And, And I always say, well, there is no upside down from outer space. Right. And I got this map about 25 years ago and it was all about questioning assumptions. So many times assumptions become quote unquote facts that actually rule the paradigm in which we literally see the world. And what I really love about this map is, you know, so many maps have the UK at the center at the top, right? And what's nice about this map is actually Africa is at the center at the top. And I think it talks about the importance of developing nations. I think it talks about the importance of diversity and inclusion. Um, and, and I think Africa is going to be one of the most important continents over the next 100 years, probably the next 50 years. And, and so I love this perspective because, um, you know, it's the old notion of fish discovers water last. So many times we don't know the environment that we're swimming in until we're pulled out, gasping for breath, looking back, saying, oh, my God, is that the culture that I've been swimming in all this time? And it's not until you gain that awareness that you can actually make changes that are significant to an organization or to yourself or to your family or to your country. And so I think it's really important to always question assumptions because we we're given, quote unquote, facts all the time. And uh, I think we need to challenge those and make sure they're not just assumptions. So true. And, you know, I m- maps as you say, are full of assumptions. And it's actually something I geek out on, you know, all the different types of, you know, there's a lot of other ways of drawing the earth and the Mercator projection. And in fact, the Mercator projection skews the size of, of, of places like the United States, you know, ridiculously out of proportion to other parts of the world. You know, Greenland is not in reality, you know, this enormous, you know, landmass, you know, compared to Africa, 
that it appears on Mercator projections. Well, you know, my, my, my father um, passed away in 2009, but he was a lifetime military. You know, he's a, he retired as a, yeah. an officer in the military. I remember my dad always saying, um, when the terrain doesn't match the map, ignore the map. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and that's true in business, too. So many times we've got like a business plan. You know, but the competitive right. environment is different from what we assumed in our plan. And we've got to pivot. We've got to change. We've got to actually, you know, make sure that we address what's really going on, not what our assumptions were on a piece of paper. Well, and, and you're so right. And, you know, this is why one of the key aims of what we try to do is, is talk about driving decision making as close to the coal face as possible, driving decision making as close to the front line as possible, driving decision making as close to the factory floor as possible or the retail cash register as possible, because it's the people on the ground at the front, at the, at the pointy end of the spear that understand better than the people at the top of the house what's going on, what things really look like. You know, it's, 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 uh, you know, there's, there's a great quote from Eisenhower and I'm going to paraphrase it because the exact wording I may be slightly off on, but which is that, you know, he said, uh, farming looks easy if you do it from a desk and your plow is a pencil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, exactly. But, you know, I, I think you're hitting on something really important, which is the power of the individual, you know, and, and it's interesting, you know, if you go back kind of before the internet, Right. And most of our businesses, most of our institutions were all designed before the Internet, before the World Wide Web. And I think before the Internet, Sir Francis Bacon was right. Knowledge is power. And so many of our organizations are structured around this power and controlling knowledge in an organization. And post-Internet, um, really, Albert Einstein is right, which is imagination is more powerful or more important than knowledge. And I think that's where we are in organizations today is how do we unleash that imagination? You know, because I'm always I'm always intrigued how all of us go through our lives raising children, paying our bills on time, volunteering in the community. And somehow when we walk through the doors of a company, we're brain dead and need a supervisor. <laughs> always like people don't need supervision. What they need is leadership. They need to provide, yes. be provided clarity and specificity as to where we're going. You know, one of my favorite quotes is by General Omar Bradley, who said, we need to navigate by the stars, not by the light of every passing ship. And, and so many yes, times, I love that quote. you know, <laughs> I love that you know quote. And competitors are just passing ships. Yeah, we got to be cognizant of where they are. Right. But can we put the stars in the sky? So even if you have 100,000 employees around the world, Everybody can see those stars in the sky and can navigate based on the, the vision of the company versus all the little shiny objects that come our way on a daily basis. And I think that's the role of leadership is to put the stars in the sky so that we all can navigate where we're going together. I couldn't couldn't have said it better. I mean, Pete, that that is you know, that's the definition of being a thinking leader is is, is providing that clarity. And getting out of the way to, sorry, allow for that capability um, to occur. And uh, it's it's so important. And it is, it's something that is rare, though. You know, one of the things that I was so impressed when we started working with Kimberly Clark, and, and I, I don't want to get into any confidential stuff here, but was just that to find out that there was a you there, that there was someone whose job was to think crazy ideas about how 
very simple consumer products could become something a lot more than than just that. Yeah. And some of the ideas I heard from you were just mind blowing. And and it, 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 I was like, that that makes me happy to know that there's someone whose job it is to think about things like this. And it's rare, though. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's really important to and it's not just, you know, I think all of us need to be unleashed. You know, I, I can sum up my whole leadership principle in one equation. And that equation is performance is equal to potential minus obstacles plus encouragement. And let me unpack that a little bit, right? So yes, I, I really it. believe people's potential far exceeds our ability to even comprehend it. But what holds them back are obstacles. And our job as leaders is to identify those obstacles. They don't understand the strategy. They don't have the training. And it can't be excuses. I'm not talking about victimitis. I'm talking about real obstacles that keep people from living to their full potential. And sometimes the right. biggest obstacle in a person's is in a person's mind. And so they need encouragement. They need to be told, you can do it. I believe in you. I trust you. Go make it happen. And so many times in organizations, managers focus on measuring a person's performance and predicting their potential. And so many of our systems are around performance and potential. But I think leaders spend all their time trying to understand what are all the obstacles that are keeping you from living to your full potential? And what targeted encouragement can I give this individual so that they can live to their full potential and their performance will exceed anything we can even comprehend? And I think that's the real job of leadership is remove obstacles, provide encouragement, and help people live to their full potential. And, and I, I think if we do that in organizations through servant leadership, I think we'll be blown away at the outcomes that, that are achieved by just ordinary people. Amen. Preach on, brother. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, that that is that is that is that is that is the gospel we preach at Red Team Thinking in a, at uh, at the on this podcast because you know this is this is what I saw from my mentor Alan Mulally, and you and I have talked about this before. You know, it, it he, the the thing that 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 I learned from him was the job of the leader is not to be the person with the answers. It's to be the person who clears a way for the people who have the answers to execute, to move forward, to do those things. And, you know, when he came in to Ford from Boeing, almost every lever he pulled was a lever that somebody in Ford had already identified. They already said, we should pull this lever, but they either couldn't reach it or the, the company's caustic corporate culture was holding, you know, was keeping them from being able to pull it. And his job was say, you mean this lever here? Yeah. Let's pull that. <laughs> that is, you yeah, know? that is key. That is key. There, there is so much latent capability in organizations. You know, I, I, you know, I sometimes think that the United States is the most underdeveloped nation in the world. When you look at our potential, wow. you think about the yeah. potential and how many individuals in the United States are not living to their full potential. And, and then broaden that around the world. How many people, how many of our 8 billion people are not living to their full potential? I bet it's 8 billion, you know? And so, you know, how, how do we remove obstacles, provide encouragement, provide clarity and specificity to, to a vision that we all can buy into, you know? And, and that's when extraordinary things happen at a family level, a company level, a country level, a world level. Well, it's funny you, you should say that because literally 
just this morning, I was reading a story about this Ethiopian born kid in Virginia who invented at 14 a soap that helps cure breast or cure uh, skin cancer. Wow. And, you know, you know, you know, a, a young Ethiopian immigrant living in, with his parents in Virginia just won the one of the top, uh, you know, teen science awards for developing a soap that stimulates cells to 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 respond and combat skin cancer at 14. Yeah. Yeah. And that speaks exactly to this untapped potential you're talking about. And, 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 and you know. You're right about the world, but I want to stick with the U.S. for a yeah. second here because what you were just saying made me think of something really interesting. Um, several years ago, I heard a, it was probably like you know ten or twelve years ago. I, I heard a really interesting interview um, with Melinda Gates, and it was actually a really sad interview in a certain sense because she was on she was on um, the Diane Reem show on NPR, and you know which is a call-in show. And one person after another was angrily calling in and saying, why do you spend all your money in Africa and, and you know, in, in India and, you know, not help the people in the United States? And just very calmly and on point, Melinda kept repeating the same point. She said, you know, Bill and I have studied the, the situation carefully. And she said, we invest in one thing in the United States, which is education. The thing that holds people back in America is unequal access to education. She said, you know, this is not the case in Africa. In Africa, there are people who are well-educated who don't have access to clean water, who don't have access to, to healthcare, who die of, of treatable diseases. And so in those countries, we are focusing on things like this because, because that's what hold, holds people back. But the reason why people go hungry in the United States, she said, is not because there's not enough food in the United States. The reason why people die early of treatable diseases in the United States is not because there's not enough medicine in the United States. The reason, she said, we have studied this for years. And the reason that every bad thing that exists in the United States socially exists is because of lack of education. If people had equal access to education, you wouldn't have you know, people going hungry in Appalachia. If people had access to good education, you wouldn't have, you know, high rates of, of preventable childhood disease in, in urban, you know, you know, ghetto areas and stuff like this. The problem in the United States is that we have a broken education system. And so she said, we do invest in the United States, but we only invest in education because if you solve that, you solve all these other problems in the U.S. And I think that goes to what you're talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. You know, one of the most powerful presentations I ever saw was by Joseph Coates, who was, uh, there was a think tank mm -hmm. called Coates and Jarrett. And Joseph Coates presented this presentation one time on achieving the American dream. And it was all these waves of immigrants, Italians, Irish, German, mm -hmm. that came into the United States and looking at how long it took them to achieve the American dream, which was defined as their kids went to college, they own a house, they own a car, they can save some money, you know, those kind of parameters. Yeah. And it was roughly 30 years. So then, then, um, he looked at African-Americans and of course, African-Americans had been here for 300 years, but they were enslaved all that time. Um, and even, even after the civil war, you know, with Jim Crow and everything else, you know, he was looking at, well, um, 
you know, how long does it take for an African-American in the United States to achieve the American dream? And this was roughly like 1980s is what he was looking at, that African-Americans began to own houses, own cars. Their children started to go into college. And so then he back titrated to see what would be the date of embarkation for African-Americans, and it aligned with Brown versus the Board of Education. And to your exact point, it's not till you, you have go. access to education can you achieve the American dream. And so, I, you know, I, I commend, you know, Melinda Gates because I think that's what we need to focus on in the United States is education. You know, one of the things that um, I worked on during the pandemic and, and uh, um, with an individual named Jason Fields, I just love Jason. So Jason is the CEO of MADREP, the uh, Economic Development Board of uh, Madison, Wisconsin. And prior to that, he was the state representative for District 11 in Milwaukee. And him and I got to know each other and we started this idea was, hey, rather than importing products from China, what if we could import solutions from our inner cities? What if we focused on black entrepreneurship and, and how do we foster black entrepreneurship? And so Jason and I, we wrote some papers, we worked on this. And uh, there's an individual, uh, Craig Dickman, who's the managing director for Titletown Tech, which is a joint venture between the Green Bay Packers and um, Microsoft. And so we presented this huh. to Craig Dickman and we had this idea, we were like, yeah. wouldn't it be cool if the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball could get behind this idea of fostering black entrepreneurship in Baltimore and St. Louis and all of our major cities. And, and, it wasn't, and it was this idea of how do we close the racial wealth gap in America, not by bringing whites down, but by bringing blacks up. And if we could do that, it would add almost $5 trillion to the U.S. economy by closing the racial wealth gap in America and Craig Dickman went on and presented this to Mark Murphy, who is the managing director of NFL. So my part was really small. I got to give Craig Dickman the credit. Uh, and Mark presented this to the NFL. And there's something today called equity leagues. And that's exactly what equity leagues is focused on, is fostering wow. entrepreneurship in our urban cities uh, to educate um, people who live in the inner cities on how to create businesses, how to start businesses, um, and how to create value um, so that we can close the racial wealth gap in America. And, and it does. It all starts with education. And that goes right to your point about the untapped talent. You know, that's the thing. It's, you know, it, and, and, you know, it, 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 it's sad that in this day and age, this is so easily solvable, you know, you look at things like the Khan Academy. The Khan Academy has made great education, great learning open to anybody who wants to, who wants to take it, but you still need leadership. You still need, you know, it's hard for a kid to self-direct themselves through the Khan Academy, that you still need a teacher to, to even leverage that, you know, and stuff. And so it's, it, you know, and it, it's still, I mean, I, I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but, you know, it's incomprehensible to me that we live in a country in which we pay teachers less than we pay prison guards. Yeah. Well, Bryce, you know, what, what's amazing to me is within less than a decade, we went from the earth to the moon. Right. And, yeah. and also, right. And, 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 you know, it's that scene in Apollo 13 where Tom Hanks is covering up the moon, you know, and he says, you know, we didn't have to go. We decided to go. We, we just decided right. to go and we went, right? And so if, if we could go from the earth to the moon in less than a decade, why can't we achieve 
racial equality, racial justice, gender equality within the next decade. We don't need a Saturn V rocket to do it, right? You know, all it is is our mindset. You know, if you want to change the world, all you have to do is change your mind. And sometimes that's the biggest change of all is to change our mindset. But that's what we're challenged to do. You know, Viktor Frankl, you know, said that, you know, when you're faced with a situation that you can't change, the only option you have left is to change yourself. And and that's where... It- well, look, look at... Yeah, look at look at Mark Benioff as a perfect example of this. You know, that the, he, he, he was part of this initiative to promote workplace equality, gender equality in the workplace that he started in San Francisco. And in the middle of the first meeting, he said, you know what? I wonder what our if we have a pay gap at Salesforce and he asked his head of HR, you know, can we, can you run a report and find out, you know, is there, is, do we have a pay pay gap at Salesforce between men and women? The next day, his head of HR put a report on his desk that said, yeah, we do just let, we do too. And you know what his response was? Great. Let's close it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he just made the decision. There was no stu- focus group. There was no study group. He just said, Close the pay yeah, gap. Yeah, yeah, be because because if the results came in and your profits were you know less than target, yeah. you, you wouldn't put together a team and ask employees and everything else. You would close the gap, right? You know, and and that's right. that's what we've got to do here as well. You know, I don't know if you know this, but the the, the gender gap today, uh, if I'm not incorrect, is 150 years. The the estimate yeah, by, by the uh, yeah, the world yeah. Uh, yeah. the world. Uh, Economic Development Board, economic I think. Forum. But, you know, or, or, they look at three okay. vectors. There's educational gap, the political gap, mm-hmm. and the economic gap. And and today, globally, that's about a – it was 150 years before the pandemic. I think it actually widened during the pandemic. And to me, that's yeah. just totally unacceptable. I mean, it, you know, it, 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 you know. I, so I, I, say, I, I commend the leader that you just referenced um, to actually take action versus, hey, well, let's talk about it again. Let's study it again, you know. But that's the thing. So I'm going to sell. I'm going to say something that I'm. I'm. It saddens me to say, but I. It's something I thought a lot about, and I think it's true. You talked about you know going from the Earth to the Moon in a decade because we decided to. I would submit that we decided as a country to stop doing stuff like that just as, just as intentionally as we decided to do it. You know, I, I will tell you, I, I, I thought it was a really sad day when the last space shuttle was driven through the streets of LA to a museum. Yeah. I actually, I actually teared up yeah. because I, that the day that that happened, there was a story that I read and I don't remember where it was. It was New York times, wall street journal, something like this by a scientist. It was not bad. And it said, America is slowing down. And it, and it talked about, we now the, have, we, we now lack the ability to travel as fast and as far as we did 40 years ago. Yeah. We don't have, and, and I know we do right now, but you know, at the time he said, you know, we don't have anything like the Saturn V rocket anymore. We, we don't, you know, it, it actually takes jets longer to cross the U S today than it did 30 years ago, you know, and I know there's reasons for this and fuel savings and stuff like this, but, but somehow, somehow in the, in the, I don't know whether it was the the 1990s or the two thousands, we decided as a country that stuff was just too hard for us, that solving our problems was too hard. We threw up our hands 
and we stopped doing hard things. And if you if you think about Kennedy's speech that got that kicked off the, the the race to get to the moon, what did he say? He said, "We choose to do these things not because they are easy, but because they yeah. are hard." And somehow we made a different choice in the past twenty or thirty years to stop doing things that yeah. were hard. I don't know why. But it's well, we, we, I think as a nation, we have to reinvigorate the endless frontier of Vandiver Bush. You know, I mean, you go back to Vandiver Bush and, you know, bringing government, industry, academia, citizenry together to achieve extraordinary things. And I think I think what we've lost, Bryce, is a goal. We don't have a goal yeah. as a nation. And and you know, if you go back to the week before the D-Day invasion of Europe, you know, you, you got, you know, soldiers in bars, you know, the British are, you know, fighting the Americans and they're, you know, and it, you know, a little bit of chaos going on. But but as soon as the D-Day invasion happened, everybody was folk. You know, th there was a clear mission. There was a clear goal. There was a clear objective. There was a clear timeline. And and we're just missing that as a nation. And, you know, I think that's why we're in this, you know, I. I call it this political soap opera that we're in, you know, the reds versus the blues and, you know, all the nonsense that's going on. It's because we lack clarity and specificity of vision. You know, I, I'll tell you, I'll, leave, I'll bring this back to my own experience, you know. So as an R&D vice president and I was an R&D executive at Dow Chemical, I was an R&D executive at Kimberly Clark. And every time I would take a new job, here's the dynamic that I would see. I would go ask the business people, are you happy with what you're getting out of R&D? And they would always say, no, we're not really happy with what we're getting. You know, we, we want so much more out of R&D than we're getting. I'd go talk to the R&D people and the R&D people would say, we don't feel understood or appreciated, right? And what I noticed was there was lack of clarity and specificity of strategy and vision. And what happens in an environment like that is people feel insecure. When people feel insecure, yeah. they play politics. When people play politics, you get poor performance. And that poor performance leads to insecurity. And around and around you go in this horrible, vicious cycle. And the only way I've ever been able to find a way to break that cycle is first by creating clarity and specificity of vision and objective and goal. That's one. Two is to build trust through partnership. The third thing you got to do is you yep. got to create greater value by focusing on the portfolio that you're working on. But the most important thing is you got to bring joy to work by focusing on people. So every organization I've ever gone into, that's my mantra, partnership, portfolio, people. If you, if you focus on building partnership by building trust, you, you focus on portfolio to create greater value and you focus on developing people to create joy and work, you can achieve extraordinary things. And that's what we need in a national level as well. Amen again. Amen. Let's take a break here. This is the, let's, folks, just let that sink in for a minute here. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation and talk about human centric innovation. Stay tuned. Hey folks, Bryce here. If you're listening to this and you're liking what you're hearing and you're wondering, am I a red team thinker? We have an easy way for you to find out. Just go to the show notes, click on the link there to our free assessment to find out if you are a red team thinker and what you can do to think more effectively, to lead more effectively, and to make better decisions faster in your complex world. Like I said, the link is in the show notes or you can simply go to our website, redteamthinking.com. Check it out. I can't wait to see how you score. Welcome back. So Pete, before the break, 
we were having a really great conversation and and it it all comes down to unleashing this human potential that that exists everywhere and and so much of it is untapped you have are working on something that is really interesting to me humanity centric innovation not human centric innovation as i misspoke before the break but humanity centric innovation what is humanity-centric innovation? Yeah, so humanity-centric innovation is this idea of solving the world's biggest problems in an economically viable way. So I have this crazy notion that we all can become billionaires. If we stop defining a billionaire as somebody who accumulates a billion dollars and start defining it as somebody who helps a billion people. And I think the way we can help a billion people is through humanity-centric innovation. So what is that? I think you're familiar with consumer-centric innovation. Consumer-centric innovation happens at the creative collision of what's needed by the consumer, what's required by the business, and what's possible through science and technology. And if you have those three things, you have an innovation. If you're missing any one, you don't, right? You can start with the technology, but you have to have a business model. You have to have a consumer need. You have those three things. Creative collision is, leads to an innovation. Well, humanity-centric innovation happens at the creative collision of what are the needs of humanity? And these are defined really well in the UN SDGs, you know, climate action, ending poverty, gender equality, coupled with what are the business models of the 21st century? Business models like the free data economy of Google and Facebook or the crowd economy of Airbnb and Uber. So, you know, what are those business models? And then the third piece is what are the exponential technologies of the 21st century? Artificial intelligence, advanced robotics, blockchain, gen uh, genomics. And the idea is, again, the creative collision of what are the greatest needs of in humanity that can be solved with these 21st century business models powered by exponential technologies. And that's what humanity-centric innovation is all about. Because, you know, I believe charities are important, but they're not scalable. Businesses are. Right. And so we need to create businesses with purpose, businesses that are focused on the world's biggest problems and solving those problems in an economically viable way. I love this concept. And I, I again, <clears throat> I couldn't agree with you more. This, this goes very much to my own personal life journey. I, I as many of our listeners know, I, I, I used to be a journalist. I, I didn't start out as a, as a business journalist, though. I started out as a political reporter, and I you know, was going to be a crusading uh, journalist uh, shining a light on the, the, the injustices of the world and, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, and, not, and, and, and I say blah, 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 because after covering government for Gosh, I guess it was about, you know, four years at increasingly large levels, starting with with covering the city council in a small town, one of the smallest cities in California, uh, Point Arena, California, population 500. And then, you know, ending up covering, you know, uh, state politics, you know, in the Bay Area in that space of time. I just saw at every level the dysfunction and the inability to do hard things and the inability to address problems in a, in a, in a rapid or, or, or even meaningful way in a lot of cases. And I just saw how bogged down things became. <clears throat> and at the same time, this was the late 1990s, I saw what was happening in Silicon Valley and, 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 and how, 
how problems were being solved overnight. And, and, uh, I was fortunate at the time I, w- I was working for, for a, a chain of newspapers in the Bay area that our flagship was the Oakland Tribune. And, um, I was fortunate that, uh, we reporters got to go and take a, a, a class every year at UC Berkeley, um, in journalism to continue our education. And I took one year, I decided to take a course from the business editor of the San Jose Mercury news. And, and at this point, you know, San Jose was, was ground zero of the, of the tech boom. And the, the first day of class walked into the classroom and this editor stood up in front of the class and he said, first words out of his mouth, he said, business journalists are going to be the war correspondents of the 21st century. Mm. And he said, governments move too slow. Politics moves too slow. Business is what is changing the world around us today. Business is what is going to to decide solutions or create problems. You know, business is 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 what is where the narrative of human history is now centered. And he went on to unpack in very powerful ways all of the ways that businesses were tackling issues that governments had struggled with for decades. Ways that businesses were creating problems that the governments were unable to stop. And and he said, if you want to 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 have a front seat to history now you need to be a business reporter and fortunately i had just won a whole bunch of awards for my paper on a piece i'd done and uh i i had written one of the first this was like in you know 1998 era 1999 i'd written one of the first big series on the y2k problem and and how complex it was and stuff and uh so i i walked into the publisher's office and I, and, you know, I said, I want to cash in my chips for everything. I, all the, all the laurels that just landed on the paper because of my work. And her response was, how much, how much do you want? And I said, I don't want a raise. I want a new assignment. I want to be a business reporter. I want to cover Silicon Valley. She looked at me and she said, you're a political reporter. You're, you know, and I said, well, I just wrote a piece about a technology problem and this is what I want to do. Got a lot of offers from your competitors. If you want to keep me, this is the price. And that's how I became a business reporter. And it's because I saw exactly what you're just talking about, Pete, the, that, that while it's far from guaranteed, if real rapid change was going to happen, it was going to come from business, not from government. And I still believe yeah, that. Well, and I think, I think that is a business imperative in today's world is, is to focus on purpose and to focus on creating more sustainable world. And quite frankly, you know, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z, they want to work for a company that is focused on purpose um, and has some, yes. you know, so it's a balance of profit, purpose and prosperity for all. That's what we need to focus on. And, and, and Bryce, you know, I think there's an interesting dynamic that's happening. I, I don't know if I'm right or not, but but I almost think that um, in the 20th century, institutions hired individuals to achieve the purpose of the institution. And I think we're starting to see a shift. I think in the future, individuals are going to hire institutions to achieve their own purpose in life. And, and I think that's, that's a, that is an incredible dynamic, you know, because the whole time I worked for Dow Chemical, the whole time I worked for Kimberly Clark, I never thought of myself as an employee. I, I, and it's not that I'm yeah. a megamaniac, you know, but, but I woke up every day with this purpose to help create businesses that improve people's lives. And I knew I didn't have the financial or technical wherewithal to pull it off. 
but these corporations did. And so I always ask myself, how right. do I use this institution to achieve my own personal vision? And I was lucky that I worked for a company like KC, you know, better care for a better world is what they're, you know, that's what they're all about. Right. And so by achieving my mission, I was achieving their mission. And the one thing that I found in life is that, you know, there's these two, you know, there's your purpose and there's the company's purpose or the organization's purpose that you're a part of, whether it's, you know, business journalism or, or you know, what have you, is that if there's if there is an overlap between the two, that creates stress and tension in your life. And, and yeah. you got to find that place where there's an overlap between your purpose and the organization's purpose so that you, you can really achieve your passion in life. And, and I think that's a calling for business today is to create that clarity of purpose for individuals. Um, otherwise, they're not going to get the best people to work for them. That's why I left journalism. That's why I left newspapers. You just nailed it on the head. Because, because when, I, when I started as a journalist, there was a mission that I, that I believed in about, about providing clarity, about telling the truth, about asking the hard questions. But over the course of, of, of my career in journalism, which started in the, in the early 90s and ended in 2013, the mission evolved in newspapers too. Who could post something fastest on Twitter? Who, who, who could get the story up five seconds before the competition did, whether it was right or wrong? And, and it became about eyeballs, not about truth. It became about clickbait rather than facts. And I didn't, that, that's not what I signed up for. So fortunately, I had options because of the work that I'd done to be able to say, you know what, this is not the mission that I, that I signed up for. I'm done and, and to walk away from it. But I think a lot of people, I think that's why, Pete, you see so much talk about quiet quitting and, and all of this stuff is because I, I think that people don't, are not willing, as you said, you know, you know, my my grandfather, you know, went to work for Southern Pacific Railroad, you know, when he was 18 and he retired, you know, from Southern Pacific Railroad, you know, when, when he turned uh, 60 or 65, I don't remember what the retirement, railroads had a weird retirement age. And, you know, those days are gone, you know, and, and it's, it's a world right now where people are either going to go and, and do their side hustle and, and do, do something that's more meaningful to them. Or they're going to sit and, and surf the internet all day instead of doing their job because it's a job that doesn't bring them fulfillment, that doesn't doesn't meet their 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 mission. And the companies that are going to be successful, the companies that are going to are are, are going to just come be rocket ships are the ones that have that clarity of purpose that provide that value to their employees, not just value to their customers, but yeah, value to their employees. You know, there's a boy and help them. There's a book I love. Yeah. It's called uh, The Three Signs of a Miserable Job. Have you ever heard of this book? Yeah. No, <laughs> so, no. But here's, what are the three signs the three, of a miserable job? The three job? signs of a miserable job is if you're working on something that's irrelevant, immeasurable, and invisible, right? So, so if you're in a company, yeah. right? I mean, even if you're working on the biggest project in the whole company, if you can't measure whether you're winning or losing, that's a miserable existence. But even if you're working on the biggest right. project in the company, you can measure whether you're being successful. If you get no credit when it's all over, you're completely invisible. That's a miserable existence as well. And so I think to create joy in work, you just do the opposite. You give people a goal worthy of their effort. You help them measure that in terms that important to the business or the customer or the client. 
And then everybody gets credit at the end. It's like a movie, you know, at the end of a movie, you know, I don't even know what a key grip does, but he or she is up on the screen, right? And so how do right. we do that in organizations to give everybody the credit they deserve, you know, measure the impact that they're having and making sure people are working on things that are really relevant to the organization. Um, and, and you can create. What did Napoleon, what did Napoleon say? I could conquer the world if I had enough revenue. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, exactly. Well, we all want, you know, sincere recognition, um, I think is really key. You know, but but Bryce, it's interesting. Your story um, parallels mine a little bit. I um, I graduated from Oklahoma State University with a master's degree in chemical engineering, and I took a job with the Dow Chemical Company. So I've been blessed to work for Dow and Kimberly-Clark, both two really great companies. And I remember driving down to the Gulf Coast um, after college to start my job. And there's this bridge you go over. And literally on the Gulf Coast, there are just miles and miles of pipe and distillation columns and heat exchangers. And as young chemical engineer, I remember going over that bridge thinking to myself, oh, my God, this is beautiful. Look at all these pipes and distillation columns and heat exchangers. I was so excited. And about a decade later, two things happened. One is I had the opportunity to go to the Prince Charles Business and the Environment. Uh, this was through uh, Cambridge University uh, to learn about business and sustainability. Yeah, I actually got to meet Prince Charles twice, but those are two different stories. I can tell you. That's I can awesome. tell you sometime. I, I'm a big oh, fan. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I even get Christmas cards from Prince Charles. Uh, they're they're kind of interesting. They're like these. Uh, he, like these painted things, you know, that he, his hand painted. King Charles. King Charles. King Charles. Charles yeah, he, he was just yes. Prince Charles then. Yeah. He just signs it Charles. But anyway, I, 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 I love that. That's amazing. I, I, I that's digress. So I digress. Cool. So anyway. No, no, no. That's cool. Go, but go ahead. So anyway. Yeah. I, I, I'm so happy you're telling this story, by the way, because I know this story. So, you know, two, two, yes, two, two really events. You know, one was the Prince Charles Business and the Environment. But the other thing that happened was in 1997, actually Christmas Day 1997, we learned that my, my wife was pregnant with our first child, Rachel. She's right there. Um, anyway, um, so, so the business, business and the Environment, and I learned that I was having a child. And over that Christmas break, I took some time to ask myself, what had I really accomplished in life? What did I want to accomplish in life? And what did I want my legacy to be? And I wrote down this mission statement, which is to help raise children that live a life fulfilled and help create businesses that improve people's lives. And every major decision that I've made since 1997 has to help me raise children that live a life fulfilled or help create businesses that improve people's lives. And when I went over that same bridge again, I remember looking out and thinking to myself, what a rape of the earth. Can't we do better as human beings? You know, rather, you know, every single day, look out your window. Every single day, nature is taking CO2, water and sunlight and making complex carbohydrates. You know, how do we move from hydrocarbons based on petroleum to carbohydrates based on microbes and plants. I mean, that, that was what went through my head right there at that moment was there's got to be a better way. And that's what humanity centric innovation is really all about is solving our biggest problems using the power of nature. She's been at it for 3.5 billion years on this planet. I think we have something to learn from her. Right. And so, you know, I love and, that. And so that that guiding vision of creating business that improve people's lives, quite frankly, 
It's the reason I left Dow Chemical to come to Kimberly Clark. It's the reason I left management to become chief scientist. It's the reason I left Kimberly Clark to start my own company focused on this idea of creating businesses that improve people's lives. I'm really passionate about this idea, and I really believe there's a real opportunity for us to solve the world's biggest problems in an economically viable way through exponential technologies, business models of the 21st century focused on the biggest problems facing humanity. And I love it. And I, I love that we've come full circle too, Pete from where we started with the map, because it's all about perspective, right? You know, how you viewed the those miles of, of, of pipe and condensing towers and, and heat exchangers as a, as a, as a fresh out of, out of grad school chemist versus how you viewed them after coming back from hanging with, with Prince Charles and talking about how to save the earth yeah. looked very different. It's just like you turned the map upside down. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and turning the map upside down is critical for all of us. You know, I think. Um, exactly. Yeah, no, perfect, Bryce. That's exactly what I wanted to say is, is folks, you got to turn your map upside down. You know, it's, it's for all of us changing our perspective, looking at things differently and asking tough questions is the way to, to move forward, is the way to, to, to show us the, the, the door that we didn't even know was there and then to have the courage to walk through it. Pete, this has been an amazing discussion. We've got to have you back on, this, on the show. I know we've just scratched the surface. This is, you've given me so much to think about. You've given our listeners, our viewers so much to think about. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bryce. And just remember, if you want to change the world, all you have to do is change your mind. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode there. You'll also find a link to our free assessments. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.